Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga creator episode. My name is Adam, and today I'm talking with the talented story architect and forever DM, John Christian. He creates and coordinates the design of the organized play adventure path, Dragonlance Vault of the Undying Adventure. Before we get into it, I would like to take a moment and thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below and remind you, you can always pick up Dragonlance Game materials using my affiliate links also in the description below john how you doing man doing well that is so well rehearsed by the way i'm so jealous as someone that produces content and as a host myself i mean it's usually like an exercise in buffoonery yeah. whenever we're opening up so that's good stuff doing that's well though usually how it works this is a, a little bit smoother <laughs> intro than traditionally but, uh... yeah, i'm notorious for it we're stepping in it yeah um, Jeff, Chris, thanks for joining live. Anyone else joining us through the course of this, of course, if you have any questions for John about anything, go ahead and throw them in live in chat and we'll sort of address them as soon as we have an opportunity. We do have a lot to talk about though, because this is a Dragonlance channel. You are a Dragonlance aficionado. Mm. So let's just sort of have a little bit of fun. Now I know you've done a bunch of these type of interviews about specifically this series that you've been putting out, mm -hmm. but I want to do a little peek behind the curtain because I am not personally familiar with you. So can you give us a little background about, uh, you know, where does your passion for fantasy derive from and ultimately how you got into Dragonlance? Oh, well, where it came from and Dragonlance, it's like the perfect intersection because that's where it all started. Okay. I was in eighth grade and the first book that I ever, first fantasy book that I really read from cover to cover wasn't like your The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Prydain or the typical entry points that a lot of other people would get. It was yeah. it was Dragonlance for me. I started with Autumn Twilight, and within a week, I went out and bought Twilight, Winter Night, and uh, Spring Dawning all within the same week and devoured. That's pretty much all I did. It was during the in the middle of summer, and uh, it was I was at camp at the time, and uh, I talked my camp counselors into letting me read. The entire time, I remember sitting. There's like a there was like a dance at the very end between the, the guys and the girls, and they're super awkward. <laughs> yeah. Guys on one side, girls on the other, and I'm sitting here like I'm, I'm cracked open, spring dawning, and I'm super into it. And all my buddies are like, "Come on, man! It's one of, like somebody needs to go up there and dance." I'm like, hang on a second, Raceland just came in with the black robes, and there's something's yeah. happening right now. So yeah, that's so what it's all swimming in panties, basically. Oh man, it was saying. it was right. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's, when everyone else was like being chased by Jason Voorhees, you were just in the corner safe. And sound i was the safe nerd that's exactly <laughs> what i was until i watched nightmare on elm street 3 and then i was like uh we're all really in a lot of trouble so oh yeah oh yeah. my gosh that is such a great reference too thank you i'm not sure many people i i, I have no idea how old you are but sort of our generation i'm gonna mm -hmm. just sort of assume that was a seminal nightmare on elm street like the first one i don't want to get off on a tangent but i'm just gonna well, let's do it that's really all right quickly. i'm all about tangents let's go i'm ready <laughs> Like, the first one was a genuine horror film. I mean, Freddy yeah. was introduced as sort of a little bit scary. The second one was a little mm. bit strange because, mm -hmm. you know, it, the, the direct overtones, and I actually do enjoy the, you know, the, the sort of movement it made for a lot of people in, mm -hmm. in recognizing LGBTQ sort sure. of individuality and stuff like that. But I always thought it was awesome just because of that scene where he jumps out of the ground at the mm -hmm. pool party. He's like, you're all my children. Yeah. But three, because I was a and d geek at the time, just him being, when I sleep, I'm a wizard or oh my whatever gosh. the line was. Well, I loved, I think what I what killed me about that movie, and I think that's easily my my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street, is because it turned. It was the first time that the tables got turned. I mean, Nancy mm. at the beginning, in part one, 
turn the tables on him. Yeah. But there was a, an entire group of teenagers that had all been terrorized by him for who, who knows how long. Yeah. And it was like, it was this, uh, what do they call it? They call it lucid dreaming, mm -hmm. right? Where this this whole, uh, you're aware that you're asleep and because you're aware that you're asleep, you can ha you can do whatever you want to and manipulate the dreamscape, so to yeah. speak. So yeah, man, I, I loved that between like all of them. That, that whole – as soon as they went into the dream realm and they kind of got their, their superpowers or whatever yeah. it was, it was like super empowering for people that had been terrorized by somebody for so long. So that it really – I think it spoke to an entire generation honestly and that's why it's probably one of the, the, the undersung fan favorites of the series. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And then just the one-liners and that nurse scene. Oh, Gosh, man. Gosh. I mean like Robert England. Oh, he's Robert, amazing. The, the man, the man's like, uh, I love how much he loves it too. He's yeah. so, he's so generous. And so like, um, I've, I've met him a couple times at different conventions and he's always so available mm -hmm. and appreciative and, and, uh, and he puts up with a lot, honestly, yeah. out of, out of the oh, fan base. Sure. Yeah. It's great. Cause we're obsessive and crazy. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean that's, that's what happens when you're a fan. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm, it's well, the same way for me. Anytime that I meet Margaret or Tracy, yeah. it's all, it's like that. I don't get really lathered up. I don't get nervous. I don't get starstruck or anything like that. But for whatever reason, Tracy, not so much. Tracy's like, it's easier to approach him for some reason, but I always get super weird around Margaret. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Thank you. I start Love doing you. the robot. I don't know. I do. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know what it is. I just like my, my arms just flail and go akimbo. Right. Awesome. Well, welcome to the fandom podcast, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Here we, we go. Just cover every topic. That's right. Um, so, okay, so, I mean, you you were introduced as a young man. You sort of yeah. devoured at camp Dragonlance Chronicles. There, I, I think there is a sort of a seminal moment in most people's youth where they see, in the similar, you know, a lot of adult males will just sort of latch on to an era of their life mm. and just sort oh, of yeah. live that for the rest of their life. Sure. Um, fantasy seems to be one of those things where it just sort of sinks its teeth into you at a young age, and it doesn't yeah. ever really let go. Like, I've, I've met grown men who know about Dragonlets from their youth, and mm -hmm. then we can just sort of riff about old, you know, yeah. Chronicles events, like, Decades and decades later. So it's just one of those things that really does um, latch on to you. Are there any yeah. other fandoms, uh, I mean, in the fantasy genre, other than Dragonlance, that really pulled you in like that? Um, so I'm an, an 80s kid, mm -hmm. right? So I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, so I, I cut my teeth. The first fantasy books that I read were Dragonlance, but pretty much any of the sword and sorcery films and uh, from that era, Conan. Uh, oh, so good. Uh, Willow, Dark yes. Crystal, Labyrinth. I mean, you name it. All of this, Ice and, uh, Ice and Fire, not Song of Ice and Fire, but Ice right. and Fire. Uh, all of those those movies back then, I still love those. Princess Bride. I mean, you name it. Any of like the 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 big uh, fantasy films of the of the 80s, I really loved. Uh, I think that I love, ah, man, I love um, the Wheel of Time series. Oh, it's yeah. really verbose, Right, like it's a, yeah. a thousand two hundred pages that really could be condensed into like six hundred. Yeah, Robert Jordan goes on. He does, but I mean, that's, I'm I'm all over the place. But mo I think that really my my niche, like my, for you, like my formative years, really started out while I was in the in the in the eighties. So. Uh, all through the 80s and probably early, early 90s, there's a lot of pop culture in there that I still really gravitate towards and love. And then I, one of the the gifts that you have when you're passionate about that pop culture era is you can introduce another generation to it. So between my kids and people that I that I meet, like the these next generations, like Gen, uh, Gen Z and millennials and stuff like that, that are not familiar with a lot of that stuff, it's like this weird, it's, uh, it's almost like camp to them. 
you know, like yeah. camp access as opposed to nostalgic access for the rest right, of us. Right. So, oh, isn't that for them? It's like, uh, it's like, um, there's a, the, a novelty to it, mm-hmm. you know, whereas for us, I just, I love it. So stinking much. But yeah. Sometimes I do kind of feel like that weird, creepy guy in the trench coat and like New yeah. York streets or subways. And I like open the trench coat and it's just like <laughs> fantasy books <laughs> oh, instead man. of anything else. Yeah. Dragonlance is a lot, a lot like that for me where, like I said, we I stream with some friends of mine ever since we did, uh, since uh, the pandemic. Yeah. And so for us on the show of the three of us, one of us knows nothing about Dragonlance. Cool. Another guy's like, I he read a couple of books whenever he was younger, and he really liked them, but he wasn't like into them. He was more of a Eberron and Forgotten Realms kind of guy. And then me, foaming at the mouth, like super super fan for Dragonlance. They, I get a lot of, I get a lot of weird looks and uh, and a lot of jibes at my expense for uh, for my fandom. But yeah. I'm always I'm I'm, a, I'm proud, loud and proud with it. So, well, I was I'm always curious about sort of the the trajectory that that it takes because you went from being simply a fan and and Mm -hmm. playing games and you know sort of indulging and sharing that passion with other people to creating Mm -hmm. on behalf of that fandom um what what was that turning point for you and and was there ever a point where you're just like should i really be doing this (laughs) oh yeah every day (laughs) are you kidding me like every single day how is it me I think it's like the the thing you ask yourself. Yeah. It was so how it kind of came about was I'd been a forever DM and I'd ran games for thirty yeah, years. Uh, yeah, right. But you know, here's the thing. Let me park on that just for a second. Forever DM is one of those things that I think that we softly lament in public, but we were like, at least for myself, I'm I love being a DM. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And I get weird and awkward at the table whenever I'm playing because I just don't know what to do with myself. There aren't enough characters and plates for me to spin and. And things like that. So I, I love being a forever DM, but that's essentially where it started. And then uh, during, again, pandemic happened and some opportunities opened up. I started doing a lot of organized play, running games for organized play. I got involved with the folks over at Baldwin Games who do, do let's say the lion's share, we'll say like 80% of the organized play uh, stuff for uh, big conventions like Gen Con, Origins, PAX U, you name it, PAX West. They're, they're, they're there and they're, they're running D&D uh, all weekend long. And uh, I got really involved, helped out with the committees that were there. And then what ended up happening is, um, you know, Dragonlance was coming out last year, at the end of last year. And Wizards of the Coast had effectively said, well, you know, we've given people what they wanted. They've been asking for Dragonlance for a while, and and here it is. And then that was pretty much it. They decided that that was as far as they would take it. And now they're going to hand it off to the community. Mm-hmm. And so Dave Christ, who owns an op- and it's like the primary operator of Baldwin Games, said, "Well, hang on a second. What are you guys? Are you doing anything for organized play at all? Any official Watsy organized play?" And they said, "Nah, not really. We were we're gonna if the community can do whatever they want with it." So he asked, he's like, "Well, give it to me, and I'll I'll be a premier organizer for it, and we'll put out official Dragonlance content through the organized play system." As soon as I got wind of that, I was. I was on it and they, they actually what the good thing was that my name came up because of uh because of what a huge fan i've always been i'm a, and not really necessarily just a fan but like i've written quite a bit before then and i'd organized quite a bit before then and so i had the chops for it but also had the passion to make it happen let me ask you about organized play because as someone mm-hmm. who's always sort of just hung out with friends and tabletops or, mm-hmm. you know, dark alleys talking about fantasy yeah. away from everyone prying eyes. Uh, 
I, I've never done organized play. I don't know anything about it. It's completely Dude. new to me. The whole like Adventure League itself mm-hmm. is a confusing concept for me. So for the sure. layman's like me, can you please explain what's the difference between just the game and then organized play? Yeah, that's a great question. So organized play, uh, it does a really good job of segmentizing adventure in that uh, each time that you sit down at the table, the the typical expectation is you're going to play between two and four hours adventures are really built around a four hour play schedule and so the organized so the entirety party, of the module is just well yeah right exactly well and you could have like a series of 10 adventures but they're in four hour bites okay and so the like a full campaign arc would be would be uh run through over the course of 10 four hour adventures mm-hmm. and the main reason why they do that is for uh, whenever you run games at a like a friendly neighborhood game store, anything that's in the public, right? Mm-hmm. Conventions, uh, they do a virtual weekend through uh, Wizards of the Coast now, where if you can't get access to a table or a DM, you can buy a ticket just like you would go into the movies, sit at a table, and you'll have a really great DM and have a really great experience that you can then uh, select for yourself. Like I want to run oh, play in this adventure, and with this dungeon master. And then you kind of develop a relationship with that dungeon master over time too, in the virtual weekend setting at least. So you can go back to them over and over and over again and kind of develop this like a rapport for repeat uh, access, right? And so the whole the organized bit of it is really is that we're all going to play the same adventures together, and when we do, we're going to have a really similar not but not exact experience. There's still DM empowerment and. Players are going to zig whenever you think they're going to zag and things like that. But 90% of it's going to end up being, or I'd say really more like 75% of it, is going to be pretty much the same four-hour adventure as we sit down together. And that could be spread across three or four different tables inside of a a, a game store, or it could be 20 to 30 tables at conventions like Gen Con or Origins and things like that. Do you think, as a DM, are you able to inject enough... uh, personal character building with the mm. players in an organized play setting. It's tough. So when you start out with the, I've got a lot of experience with actually running games and organized play. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really, it's a tough thing to do because it, you have this bite sized game and bite sized relationships with people that you have at the table. You can have, you'll have six seats plus the dungeon master and those six people may not know each other at all. They may have two that know one another, or you may have a whole table of six people that know one another intimately and have played with one another a lot. Uh, trying to develop a relationship between the, these these other disparate people and then like trying to incorporate their characters in a meaningful way that isn't just like, and here the, you're sitting on the adventure rails and go mm-hmm. is really, really tough. It's very tough. And it's it's a definitely a different experience than what you're going to see at um, at a home table. Yeah. There's, it doesn't bake or breathe as much. Uh, it's really just we're going to sit down and we're going to have an adventure. And we're just all – there are some kind of like um, some uh, some expectations at the table of like we're just going to be really cool with each other and our characters are going to get along. Because if yeah. they don't get along, really that, what that's going to do is it's going to make it harder for us to actually complete the adventure because there's so much other player character fi- uh, friction over here mm-hmm. that we can't really get anything done. So we're, there's like an expectation of cooperation at the table. For a lot of these things. And that's something that I think that develops over time within the first like three or four sessions of you sitting at an organized play table. You kind of get that. And I think that it's kind of like if nothing else, it's definitely an under or an un uh, an unwritten rule at the table is that we're going to all get along because we're all here just to do the same thing. And that's just have a good time. Yeah. So 
coming to the table in an organized play scenario is very much, I am here to join in this community experience of mm -hmm. focusing on this adventure module and just dealing with this. Yes. Not so much developing out my character and seeing the relationships form and bringing in backstory and yeah. really just sort of seeing where the game goes. It's well, we're going to complete this thing. Yeah. Well, it depends too. Like you've got, there are some situations where you've never come to a game store before you want to sit down and you play, want to play D and D and it's very much like that. Or you could have the same group of people that meet every single Wednesday and they really, they're going through the same adventure series like vault of the undying or dreams of the red wizards or the Moonshade stories and so you may have that experience where it's you'll have development over time. It really just depends on when people onboard into the adventures and how long they stick they stick around. Okay. For a organized play like at a convention, there's this thing called the D and D experience where you can have a table that you sit at and you purchase uh, like four adventures in a row that are all associated to one another. Uh, and that are kind of like all in a line, and you're always you're going to play with the same group of people with every single adventure. So over the course of the week, you're going to have 16 hours at the table with the same other five people plus the dungeon master that's running it. You might be able to develop a little bit more of a rapport and relationship, and have some more character development over that. It just kind of again where you sit, what you're playing, and what the circumstance is specifically, and then the that makes it tough whenever you're writing adventures for things like that to build those kinds of things in. But we have some tips and tricks on on how we do that. So what what draws you to an organized play versus just friends at a table? Mm -hmm. I prefer friends at the table, personally, right? Uh, organized play, though, uh, is about people that don't have access to it on a regular basis most of the time. Or for, like for us that are the forever DMs, every once in a while we do want to actually sit down at the table and play a game with our, our buddies. Mm -hmm. If we're going to go to Gen Con or Gary Con or something like that together. And so it gives us the the uh, availability to t take a, park our Dungeon Master uh, responsibilities for at least for the, the length of the the adventures that we're gonna we're gonna play in, so what it really does is it creates some alleviation for the dungeon masters to play some stuff, uh, and then for the players that just can't get access to a game or get to a table, there's a it's almost a guarantee that if you go to some of these larger conventions, you're gonna find a seat, you're gonna be able to play, um, and it's just not gonna be you're not gonna have the home game experience, right? And then also, I think, really, to organize play acts as a really good avenue for new players to come into it, which was one of the reasons why I was so excited about Dragonlance in particular, because I wrote it very much in an homage and for a very like a love letter to the setting that I've adored for you know twenty plus years. But what I really want is I want to onboard as many new people as possible into it, because um, I want other people to love it too, yeah. right? And so, um, so organized play is a really good avenue to do that. They they've never played D and D before. They want to try it out. Dragon Lance, I don't know what that is. That's the Lances and Dragons. Sounds like a good idea. That's a good combo to me. And then is it you a just casting game? Right, right. Well, they, I'm sure that there are some people that are like, why am I not flying a dragon yet? If they've never played D&D before, yeah. right? Uh, but yeah, I think that's another thing too. It's just, it really, it acts as a really good vehicle for new players to get in and experience Dungeons and Dragons in a very, uh, in a non-committal way, right? I'm going to try it yeah. out, see if I like it. And if I don't, I can step away from the table. And my, my friends that have been trying to get me to play it for the last 10 years are not going to be mad at me. It seems antithetical almost that that would be an avenue for first-time players. Mm. I mean, it seems like you would go to your local sh hobby shop or you would just meet friends online mm -hmm. or just friends that you knew from junior high or something and, yeah. and learn through them. But to go to like an 
organized place like a, a con for example mm -hmm. that seems for me wildly intimidating it, is it real that you do get a bunch of like new people or is it we get a really old school yeah the main reason why we do is, is for smaller towns that don't have a huge player base or they don't have a lot of people that are super excited about it you may be the one person at your high school that's actually super excited about D&D or trying it out, right? Or you just got the box set, but you don't know where to start. And there are a bajillion videos out there on how to do it. You got Matt Colville telling you to do it one way. Everybody's telling you to do it like Matt Mercer over here. And you don't really know what your own play style is. And you just want to like, you want to learn. So it's a really good place for you to go and learn how to play D&D &D okay. too. Because a lot of the DMs that we've got uh, that are run for at least for Baldwin and the Herald's Guild in particular are really there that's what we're built around it's not it's not what we're built around but it's, it's one of the the skill sets that we um that we hone mm -hmm. and that is new players at the table teaching them how to play as we play so then we're not spending a half an hour or an hour teaching them the crunch we're yeah. just doing it as we go along and kind of pointing to the different areas of the character sheets and going over the the basics of here's how what this is what role play actually is we're just going to play pretend for the next yeah. four hours yeah. and no one's going to feel bad about or feel silly about doing weird voices and making funny faces yeah. while we do it. Okay. Um, I got a question here that I'm curious about as well, before we dive into uh, the adventure league uh, project that you've been working on. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about uh, sort of comparing and con contrasting the original DL modules from AD and D to D and D five E with mm. shadow of the dragon queen? Um, do you have any personal relationship with either of those? Uh, are, you know, what do you think of them? I uh, I love the originals for what they are, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they're a, they're a, they're a product of the time, right? And I think both I think both are a product of both the time and the place where Wizards of the Coast or TSR at the time, where they were mm -hmm. uh, in the kind of in the the zeitgeist or in the, the in the gaming sphere. And uh, I think DL one was just like a wild experiment, is really what it was. You know, they this was. Very, it was wildly new to them to create this uh, a series as as large that would create this expansive world that and uh, with what Tracy and Laura came up with whenever they came uh, into Wisconsin was was unheard of right putting something like that together. Yeah. I think the con the contrast between the two though is that I think Wizards of the Coast had decided that they there was enough material out there. This is a more of a guess than like actually uh, educated guess than like yeah. definitive or authoritative answer. But I think with the Shadow of the Dragon Queen, they said people want Dragonlance, we'll give them Dragonlance, but we're not going to give them any more than this absolutely necessary because there's scads of books that are already out there and there's decades of material and lore that's already out there and we don't need to add to it we're just going to add an adventure and we're going to bolt on a bit here at the very beginning to get people started and get them hungry or curious about things to where they can go and delve into the other materials that are out there on dm's guild or if you want to buy it on ebay or something like that but i think it was born out of it was more of like a tactical decision in the way that they did it now as a dragonlance fan i want 500 books and i want everybody that's on them to be really passionate about the the setting and right. I want more, 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 but that's me. So I think they probably had, they probably are reading tea leaves that we're not aware of as to why they went the, the direction they did, did with it. Um, I think that with, uh, we've just, we've gone more the illusion of a sandbox in, uh, in the modern era, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to in DL one through 16, uh, with all of those, it's like people knew that they were on rails and they were fine with it. Whenever they're sitting down and they're playing it, it's like, they're going to, they're going to be in Star Wars and they're going to play Han Solo, Leia and Luke and um, 
or Boba Fett even, or, or uh, Lando, right? Yeah. They knew they were going to play these characters. They're not my characters. They're somebody else's characters that somebody else developed, and we're going to follow this through line that feels very much like we're just replaying, we're, we're playing through a scripted uh, scripted film as opposed to now where there's like, you have to have custom characters. And like I said, the illusion of uh, choice and uh, verisimilitude and all those, all those uh, catchphrases that we use and terms that we use these days to kind of make it feel like it's a sandbox. So uh, preferences over one over the other is, I think there's like anything in life. It's, it's really is, it's something in between. Yeah. I think anything that we play, is going to be a railroad, whether we want to admit it or not, because otherwise it's just a, an exercise in improvisation. You're in a, you're in a tavern and we're just going to guess at everything. And I've done that before, but it's also exhausting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so every once in a while having like a planned out, like I know what the scene is going to do. And I know what it's what it's supposed to serve. And I know what this villain is supposed to serve to the story and how this is important. Mm-hmm. And it's forecasting something else down the line. So it's, uh, I think, for, again, for preference for me, organized play is very much riding the line on trying to, to create an illusion of a sandbox. But it has to be on at least some form of rails because you got four hours to get something done. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's pretty tough. So for the adventures that you've been writing um, and, and sort of architecting out, those are that sort of four hour consumption type mm-hmm. formats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the first adventure that we wrote uh, that I wrote was uh, dragons of divinity, which was a two hour prelude to the, to the actual story. And you, it was a take it or leave it. And I, I the way that I wrote it specifically was to write, it was a, a jump point into the main story that we were trying to tell, but it was also a jump point into pretty much any dragon Lance adventure during the, the war of the Lance. It's like, this is how we all got together. We were we were walking on the road to one another, and here's a thing that happened while we were on, along the way, and it propelled us into the actual events of the War of the Lance. So that was intentional to be like you could use it for Shadow of the Dragon Queen if you're running through DL one. You could probably use it to some to some degree, um, uh, and then it really helped out for propelling for uh, for our stories. So for your involvement, I'm curious, is it? Is it the passion of uh, organized play and wanting to put something together for those types of tables, or mm-hmm. is it after Shadow of the Dragon Queen came out, you wanted to do organized play for Dragonlance specifically? It was really, I wanted to do anything that I could to be involved with Dragonlance. That's the God's honest truth. I mean, like, I was already in organized play, and whenever the opportunity presented itself, it's one of those things where, like, I remember whenever I worked at a place once and we had uh, our uh, a couple of folks come in for interviews to be ma- a manager. It was before I was in leadership. And the interviews with the manager that would be the people that would be my manager didn't go the way that I wanted. So I eventually said, well, I'll just go for the management positions because I don't know that I can trust anybody else to do it, you know, and not that I can't trust anyone else to actually write the Dragonlance stuff for um, for organized play. But I know that if nothing else, I've given it everything that I possibly can mm-hmm. to to owe, like to owe like an, an homage and like I said, a love letter to the setting and then giving it a hundred percent and making sure that the people that I'm working with are really passionate, really talented people that are, uh, that are writing the adventures too. So, uh, the fact that it was Dragonlance was like the, the main thrust of it. Um, or organized play was just a medium or a vehicle for doing it. Yeah. And are the modules like you, you had mentioned that, um, the first one, which we're going to get into, you know, specifics, well, a little mm-hmm. more specifics than we have being vague as we have. Mm-hmm. Um, is it all meant to be a prelude to Shadow of the Dragon Queen, or is it meant to be sort of companion to it? 
Right. It's a great question. Whenever the when I was first presented with it, I thought that it needed to be tightly coupled with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, some the dialogue that we had back and forth with wizards on how much freedom that we were given to actually what how big was the the sandbox that we could create or the the play the playground that we could play uh, create. It starts out at the same time that Dra Shadow of the Dragon Queen does early 351 AC. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, like the very the opening salvo of the Vanguard campaign. And it runs in parallel to it for a while, but it's elsewhere. It's not. It doesn't overlap. It doesn't intersect with anything that happens in the hardcover book. But it's kind of like while all this is happening up in the north, this is what's happening in the south of Salamnia. Yeah, I'm always interested when it comes to um, the development of modules and, and mm -hmm. campaigns in general because when I <clears throat> pardon when I think of Dragonlance, I mean you have those grand epic scale scenes that you want to be mm -hmm. involved in and you know they used to use those with battle system or now mm -hmm. they have warriors of crin which i actually enjoy a lot mm -hmm. um but you also have those really intimate moments between uh, different types of characters with different sensibilities and that mm -hmm. for me is the strength of Dragonlance. yeah so when i try to craft stories or, or try to help shape backgrounds for characters and in, you sort of interweave them with modules i really fall back on that sensibility side of it where it's, you know, for example, Sturm is not a knight, but he's not telling anyone that he's not a knight. He's mm -hmm. just living the knighthood. That's, that's a, that's a character choice that is not easy. It's been mm -hmm. informed by the incredibly difficult lifestyle that he has had informed by his mother and the choices that his father had to make mm -hmm. because of the, you know, sort of the fallout of the cataclysm. And, you know, the, the sort of interpersonal relationships with all of the friends and companions that he's, he's dealing with, the choices that he makes are not easy. They're not even always right for the moment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as far as living a long life. But it's true to his character. And mm -hmm. I think having choices like that or having situations like that really flesh out the, the drama of Dragonlance, which I think yes. is the incredible backbone of what Dragonlance is or why mm -hmm. Dragonlance is successful um, in general. So when you're crafting adventures, and I know you can't do this because you're going to be handing them off to every individual, you know, DM and their players mm -hmm. are going to bring their own whatever. But how do you balance that sort of micro personal expression of the character v the macro grand war side of it? I mean, are you even focusing on that or are you just hyper focused on the here are the story beats we want to hit? No, no. I think that like any good film, I'm a bit I mean, big film buff again, 80s, 90s. Yeah. Like I, I fell in love with pop culture and films and the best ones are the ones where they have the characters that you're rooting for the NP the NPCs to me are, and the characters that are not the player characters mm -hmm. are, have a, a critical importance too, because they're part of what are going to connect you to the game or to the story more so than just the events that are happening. Mm -hmm. You can have neat environments with uh, like lots of flashy, um, uh, uh, encounters and scary monsters and things like that. But if you can create a character that's inside of there that people root for and want to come back for, and if something bad happens to them that they're affected by it, or something good happens to them that's then they're affected by it, I think that's like that's the that's the the best way that I know how to really engage people and pull them in. Uh, even I'll go, I'll use divinity as an example. Like the knighthood is really important, and so one of the things that happens very early on is there is this expression for both old old players are going to know it, or old fans are going to understand where the knighthood is mm -hmm. during the War of the Lance and the the uh, the state of decay that the, the the knighthood is in and how sad that really is. And so they're each of the characters are are 
kind of expressing and representing the state of the world as we're as the state while the staging point of the war is about to happen. So there's like Sir Jacelyn Uth Shannon is a character who is uh, similar to in in some regards to Sturm in that uh, lament she does well Sturm doesn't really understand exactly how far the knighthood has fallen, so to speak, away from the event. Right. But whereas Sir Jacelyn knows and um, and is more of a not a rabble rouser or a rebel necessarily, but she she wants to see uh, the knighthood go back to its roots, so to speak. Or she understands like what uh, what uh, Sir uh, Sir Whiston or um, Gunther, Gunther Sir Gunther did whenever he kind of uh, whenever they uh, refreshed the oath and the measure at the end of the War of the Lance. She sees the writing on the wall that that's something that needs to happen, and so she's an advocate for. The, the the knighthood to go back to its roots and um and so that's a part of that's like under for her story expression comes uh, that that is expressed from her story and from her background of like here's where the, the knights are and so we give a lot of the, go ahead I'm, i didn't mean to interrupt you. no you're good do you see the irony in that like a female knight wants to go back to the roots of the knighthood mm-hmm. when females oh, were not allowed to be in the knighthood. i know exactly i know i know and that's one of those things where <laughs> It's uh that's another that's another like modern era Dragonlance thing that was that was that was handed in where um the sensibilities of the the modern era changed and we were we were asked to incorporate more um and what and we, and we oh, did you were actually directed to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it's one of those th- and we, it's one of those things where you did I tried the best that we could to make it a Ripley, an Ellen Ripley or a uh, Sarah Connor. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like of the like they earned the place that they were they were in, and yeah. she was a she is an oddity yeah. in the in the knighthood, and more like something that was like that was like um, not tolerated, I guess, more than anything else, as, as opposed to being. And there's actually an element in this where there's like the the weirdo wing of the the knighthood that's led by Sir Emmon Bray. I say weirdo, right? Like he is essentially uh, he has gambled his reputation on what he believes the the future of the knighthood is going to end up looking like right whether it's through destina rose thorn we're kind of seeing that in the in the new the new Dragonlance uh books that are coming out with pro margaret and, and tracy or if it's uh what ends up essentially happening at post-war of the lance is females were allowed into the, the knighthood anyway he see the, he sees the forecast of that and then uh, jacelyn is essentially part of that gamble of bringing her in and then, and not necessarily protecting her, but protecting her ability to be a part of the knighthood, whether other people like it or not. And then that friction is important in the in the story too. I like that. Um, I like that there's friction. I mean, part of what I I think was so impactful about Dragonlance in the time um, that it came out, and and why I would like to think that so many people sort of resonate with it is because it presented a world that was very much like our own. You know, there mm-hmm. is racism, there is bigotry, there is yes. sexism and, um, and unjustifiable hatreds based mm-hmm. on society and culture and, and et cetera. So learned behavior. Mm-hmm. So Dragonlance did this thing where they presented the world as it is, like mm-hmm. if if all the the Whitestone forces could get along quickly, they would have overrun the dragon army right. immediately, and it would have been not a, a, a real dramatic situation. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, they held on to these biases mm-hmm. for so long to the literally the very knife's edge of the very bitter end, before they actually you know just sort of did a, a unified front or as unified as it got to be. Um, mm-hmm. The strength of it, my long winded way of getting around to it, is that they individually overcame those biases. Yes. If yeah. you start from a position where there are no biases, 
And there's there's nothing, no no inner conflict to get through. There's no joy on the other side. There's just we're in a war. Let's win the war. And that's part of some of the Dragonlands. And that's some of the yeah, I agree. Uh, And uh, that was one of the places where we kind of diverged from the the book. Right? It's like when you see in Vogel. Not to like spoiler alert for everybody. In Vogel, there's kind of like a more of a, a happy-go-lucky, everybody gets along mentality, which was really out of place for Dragonlance. And whereas in Divinity, the majority of this is like this setup of people don't trust one another, mm. uh, they don't like one another. Then like it's not about just dwarves versus humans, or uh, you know, interco- there's inner conflict within the dwarven clans between yeah. the Hylar and the Thaywar and the Agar are never get- getting their shot and things like that, and so. There is, it's not just one nation against another. No one trusts anybody because there have been 300 years of despair and uh, famine, hardship, and there, and uh, people going without. So no one trusts one another with their resources or with their with their own lives. And so there is a disparity between, between them that's beyond just like the looming threat of war from monsters on the on the horizon mm-hmm. uh one of the big components in lemish is one of the kind of like the uh, the forgotten uh, elements to the war of the lance where you have the lemish forces in the south of salamnia that are they're all saboteurs and assassins and infiltrators and things like that and so in divinity spoiler alert one of the things that happens is there is a um there's an element where the lemish are trying to soften the belly of the salamnics before uh, the uh, before the forces come out of throttle, the hobgoblins and the goblinoids come out from the from the east and into the west, and they start that throttle gap uh, conflict. And so they're softening the belly, and the way that they're doing it is they're trying to create as much division as possible from between people uh, in Salamnia. And so the kind of the main through line that I, I developed from the very beginning, part of the division statement, if you will, is that um, the one of the things that I loved the most about Dragonlance, around the original three books, is that it was. A, a group, the fellowship were weirdos. None of them should have liked one another. They were, none of them should have loved one another. They should have hated each other and distrust one another because some of them had pointy ears. Some of them had top knots with hoop packs and some of them were tall, some were short and things like that. So all these things that were disparate about them should have separated them. But over the course of the, the books, what you find out is that thank goodness they loved one another in spite of their differences. They either learned to tolerate one another or accept one another uh, because that, those are the things that made the difference in the the fight between good and evil and light overcoming the darkness yeah. was about not redempting the indiv- the the group necessarily, but the individuals within the groups and saying that like that uh, uh, learning to accept one another for what we are and then moving beyond that towards the position of bigger fish to fry. And so that's one of the things I really loved about the through line of, of uh, the original trilogy that I'm trying very, very hard to incorporate into this. It's really about uniting. Like we can't do this if we don't trust one another yeah. and, and uh, the, everything's going to try to push us apart, everything. But until we, we learn to like, like there are certain things about you that I don't like. And I'm going to accept uh, the acceptance is that I'm not going to try to tell you that you're evil for it, but you're not harming me. So, but w- there's something else that's bigger. That's, that's a, a bigger nasty that we have to deal with together. Let's unite against that thing. And then we'll, We'll, we'll cover the rest of it later on, but we're going to cover it from a place where it's not, there's no uh, inherent animosity towards the other person just because of the differences. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the strength of the promise of the future is that you do now have this shared experience mm-hmm. of being side by side yep. 
against a shared opposition. And yep. and though, you know, in Dragonlance, that never works out anyway, but it's right, nice yes. to have that moment and that hope because ultimately that's really, I think, what these stories are about. Yeah. Um, well, I, I love that you're, you're sort of pulling back those those sort of lizard brain elements of Dragonlance mm-hmm. and sort of tiptoeing that line. Um, there's another question here about whether, uh, through the conversations you had with Watsi, do you think that they're willing to support the setting in the future beyond mm. Shadows of the Dag- Dragon Queen or the Adventure uh, League modules that you're putting out? Right. Uh, I would say, from what I know, not it, nothing in this current iteration of D&D. I'll leave it at that. Like, that, with this, whatever we're, we're, they're going to end up calling the next version of D&D, whether it's a, a 6E, 5, 5, 5, 7, 5, or 1 D&D, or whatever it's going to end up being. It's going to be called Sparkle. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah, D&D, D&D Glimmer? Just, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It'll be Glitter. Yeah. It'll be something. Right. Well, and that's one of the things we talked about before, is like whatever they want to call it, the community is going to call it what it's actually going to be called. Yeah. Effectively, right? So, but anyway, I digress. I think that they've essentially said, we gave people what they wanted. They wanted Dragonlance. Here's your Dragonlance book. We even gave you a... Um, uh, miniatures and we gave you a board game yeah. and then they're probably going to push it, push it away from the table. I don't know when they're going to bring it back up. Honestly, yeah. it really boils down to how successful any of this is. If we, if the, the organized play is probably aside from the hardcover book, it's the only other thing they're really looking at outside of maybe DMs guild, mm-hmm. you know, DMs guilds, you have to have like the, 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 uh, the ecosystem of writers that, that love this stuff. And if, if it's successful there or if it's successful in the hardcover form, they're not going to have any choice, but to, uh, to get back into it. So yeah. it, like one of the things I'm, I, as much as there are things about Dra- shadows of the dragon queen that I'm not really a big fan of in regards to the canon or how close it is to the originals or things like that. There's a part of me that's like, it still needs to be successful in some capacity because if, if we, the more successful it is, the more likely we're going to see more Dragonlance in the future, and it's not just going to go into hibernation in a cave for the next twenty years. Hey, I feel lucky as a Dragonlance fan, to be quite honest, because mm-hmm. Spelljammer fans are up oh, in wow. arms. Ravenloft fans weren't very yeah. happy. It doesn't yeah. seem that Planescape fans are going to be entirely mm-hmm. thrilled. I got a board game for War, and I got a, a actually a really decent adventure i, I so, thought it was good too i yeah. like like I'll, I'll go ahead and i'll say it here i enjoyed the hardcover quite a bit yeah. like i said it's not exactly what i'm familiar with or what feels like like there are certain th- things in it like in the timelines that don't make sense like with where the way yeah. that soft yeah. it's incorporated into the war and when and things like that or how, where dalimar is and all this other kind of thing but it was still a good adventure i was actually part of the play test uh oh, awesome. about a year before the book actually came out and i was so just tickled fault. It is my fault. Look, I'm one voice, man. I did what I could. All right. Uh, but I, I it's, it, huh? but I love, I liked it. I really do like it. I've got the, I've got like, I typically, I've got like every single version of the cover. I like it that much. And I liked yeah. the, like I got the Beetle and Grimm's yeah. version of it, version of it and stuff like that. So I'm, part of it's also, I mean, you're, like me, a Dragonlands crack addict. Yes, I mean, it is. Really, no is. it really is. Out. It's just a problem. My wife is so patient. Spike I love her so name, much. <laughs> I know. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into. Um, and I just wanted to sort of, for you know, definition's sake, Adventure sure. League is just the organized play nomenclature for yes. Wasi, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was originally like RPGA. Right. Back in the day, and it was Encounters during Fourth Edition, and it's just a rebrand. This is the the five E branding for for organized play, Adventurers League. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Dragonlance Vault of the Undying um, in a little bit more specifics. You were mm-hmm. uh, kind enough to share some imagery with me, so I want. Oh, see, and I'm already off. 
my thing here. So let's try to get back to where we once belonged. See, and I should have gone forward and I love it. back. See, this is That's everything, good. everyone. This is all right. There you go. All right. So Vault of the Undying, when, when you first sort of conceptualized mm-hmm. what this was, I mean, what are you looking at? Are you looking at four different sets of adventures? Are you looking at 10 adventures like you mm-hmm. mentioned for a campaign? I mean, what, what's the scope? It's 12. And it's 12. It, 12 adventures. And so here's the other thing. Adve- uh, organized play enjoys one thing that is very much different from the home. You cannot do it at home games. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could maybe, but there, there's a mechanism for doing it. And that's multi-table events. So imagine, if you will, um, at, at Gen Con in a ballroom with 16 tables, six uh, Dragonlance fans at each table and a DM running a table. And it's think of it like a World of Warcraft raid mm-hmm. where you are all trying to accomplish the same thing together in in parallel at different different tables. So the the one of the the first adventures as Dragons of Destruction is an epic. That's what we refer to them as this multi-table event. And so there is a in order to to because the great thing about Dragonlance is that it's a war. It's a world at war. So these multi-table events make a lot of sense uh, for this setting and for this story because there there are these mat these large scale battles that are going on where 16 times six number of players playing it at the same time feels really really big, and uh, these really really big events are, are are a blast. Where I started with all of this though, kind of where the where I kind of um, the the genesis the genesis or the seed for the story was I had to ask myself who am I really writing it for? Mm-hmm. I'm writing it for me to a degree. I, I I mean I would be a liar if I didn't say I was writing it for myself. But I think part of it is am I writing it for the the diehard fans or for new fans? And what I had to decide was I'm going to def- I'm writing it for new fans, but I'm going to show as much love and I want to honor the people that have helped carry the torch all this time, right? There, I think there's a level of respect that needs to go there for the fans that have held out through the the dark ages of, uh, of 4E where we got absolutely nothing and, and everything else behind that. So um, the really the, the, the nucleus of it was I want to bring on board as many new people as possible. So the story is it's 12 um, adventures long, but it really is about um, almost creating a, like a, playing the greatest hits from the from the DL one or really from the from the books right mm-hmm. not a not a like a, almost like a shot for shot remake but uh, and I hate to use this analogy but like the force awakens right a lot of th- one of the things that people just beat the snot out of the force awakens over is that it felt like they just redid the entire first trilogy yeah. the original trilogy right so it's in that vein of like the the reason why they did that though is because there were like two generations or gen- a full generation past that had never been exposed to star Wars. And they needed to like, we needed to onboard people into it and show them the really awesome stuff without making them go back and watch movies that were like 40 or 50 years old. Right. So with this, there are elements of this that will feel very much like the original trilogy of books, the, the, the Chronicles books, but very, very distinct in and of itself. And it's going to be in, a, in an area that people are, that is an under, represented area in the books and even in the, the a lot of the adventure modules and things like that too. Uh, they're going to be covered for the lore and the, the geography of it. Okay. Um, well, let's, as far as like the scope goes, you're going to make, mm-hmm. um, you said it was, it was 12. Was that right? 12. Yeah. 12. We have, we're, we've finished, we have eight that have been premiered. Oh, wow. Uh, yep. Yeah, so far. So I only yeah. saw two on DMs Guild. 
Yeah, so the, yeah, that's actually that's a good distinction. So the way that it works is this is kind of a back end, uh, kind of pulling the pulling the sheets up a bit, is that we we write them and then each adventure goes through it premieres at a virtual weekend, and that's almost like a it's like an open play test even mm. really because we take a lot of the feedback that comes from those virtual tables that are being run and we'll make some adjustments to the adventure and we'll do some iterative updates we do our own internal play testing first before it goes out yeah. but then we take uh, player feedback dm feedback and we'll make some adjustments that make that make the most sense so what you see with the two that are out right now they've gone they were premiered back in december of last year but they've been played over the course of the last year in virtual weekends at um through baldman games at uh, gen con origins gary con they're gonna be played at game hole con uh, they were played at Winter Fantasy, so they're they're being played out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the the uh, the first four actually have been played extensively, and the last the next four have been played quite a bit in the last three or four months. But they're just essentially like they they haven't got into the into the uh, editing layout and design and and readiness for for publication on DM Skilled yet. Right. That's starting so, to come out now. Though. So when you say virtually, I mean that are you using a virtual tabletop to do that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so they, they'll run, they play uh, on usually Roll20, Foundry, whatever the DM's preference is or the, the kind of couple with the, the player preferences. Uh, a lot of times when you do a virtual weekend, the virtual weekend is essentially just like, here are all the games that DMs are going to run. Here are the, the, table, the virtual tabletops that they're going to end up using. And there are six ta- uh, tickets to be purchased at each one. And here are the times and dates that, that you can play each one of these games at. What's your preference for tabletop? Roll20. It's the one that I kind of I cut my teeth on. Whenever yeah. uh, when the lights went out and we went, uh, it was uh, the pandemic. That's the one that I had already used. And uh, each one of us in the Heralds Guild, which is kind of like a like a subcontracted group, right? Baldman Baldman Games uses the Heralds Guild as for its um, uh, for all the GMs that run run games for them. Okay. And so each one, there were like three or four of us that said we need we need to become experts in in these. Tabletops. There was like Albert Roll, Rodeo, Roll Twenty, Foundry, Fantasy Grounds. You name it. And I ended up getting uh, Roll Twenty, so I got really proficient with it. Macros and all that kind of good stuff. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's let's touch a little bit on. Uh, let me hit my right key here. Dragon's mm-hmm. Divinity. So this is the first one that you guys put together. You were you'd mentioned earlier that it's sort of you know you're you're hitting some familiar notes as some of the early novels. Um, mm-hmm. How are you? How are you trying to separate this? Well, I guess this is the first question. Are you trying to separate it in, in tone, in feel from Shadows of the Dragon Queen and everything else that came forward, or does the act of trying to make it feel familiar immediately just feel a little derivative, just because of that? That's the connection. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, not really looking at Dragons of uh, or at uh, Shadow of the Dragon Queen really at all okay. outside of where it is in time and uh, making sure that it's geographically mm-hmm. different in a different location than what's in the hardcover so that there's not any overlap there. That was, that was really the only thing we, uh, that I really looked at outside of that though, the most of the inspiration came from rereading the novels for the 50th time. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, going through the old, D, like the old, the old DL mod- modules, honestly, and trying to, I wanted to make it feel like what I remember mm-hmm. uh, than what I fell in love with really. And so I tried to give it as much of an old school feel as I could. Um, it, sometimes it can be brutal 
and can be very unforgiving and there are real dangers that that, uh, the the training wheels come off pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. especially in the, not in this adventure, but in the next one in dragons of destruction. Uh, That's tough. It's going to be, it can be uh, war as hell is effectively one of the things that we're trying to get across and is like war is, war is no fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, that's, that's essentially the, the, for dragons of divinity, it was what I wanted to do is I would, again, it's in, it's on ramping people into the setting, right? So introducing them to the world and the state of the world and the state of part of the state of the world was despair. And like, they'd had this like intimate relationship with these divine beings, with the gods intimate. Like it's one of the things that I, I love and it's beautiful about Dragonlance over the other settings is that there's a real relationship between the adherents of a faith and their divine patron. It's, it's really important. It's not just like some, you're not just a power source that I tap into to make the bad man fall down. I actually have to like, I'm like there's worshipfulness and there is an adherence to a code and a philosophy that's really important in the relationship. And the, the gods of Kren in particular are very meddlesome. Mm-hmm. They're very, they're very Grecian, like, like a like the Greek gods in how, how much they meddle and they tamper or they direct and have direct interactions, like literally face-to-face interactions with some of the mortals that are in there. So that's another part of this Dragons of Divinity was showing people how far Kryn had fallen away when, and, and the why, some of the whys behind it. Like, this is, like Kryn is essentially a fallen state. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's not a post, it's a post-Eden almost, right? Like this post-apocalyptic fall and it, like the shining sterling knights they've fallen, the mages of high sorcery, no one trusts them. Nobody really trusted them anyway, but they trust yeah. them even less now, right? And the dwarves are in a fallen state. And so yeah. really a lot of this is just like, it's really setting the stage for the War of the Lance more than anything else. It, I feel like I tried very hard to make it feel very much like the AD&D Dragonlance that we knew. Mm-hmm. I, I always found it interesting with Dragonlance because it does present that vibe through the the novels and the original modules of that Greek god sort of pantheon and and interplay with mortals Mm -hmm. but you also sort of have to take a step back and realize that you know your average person had zero connection with the gods the king priest who was supposed to be the most divine being ever Mm -hmm. he was just shown signs fizban didn't knock at his door and rearrange his furniture Mm -hmm. so they really aren't as involved as we like to think they do their own thing and when mortals happen to benefit or hinder them that's when they you know Right, that's true. Except for, like, I think that's a, good, priest, that's a good point. I think maybe maybe that's a good point. Maybe it's more like there is a, whenever there are agents of their will, right? Yeah. They have more divi- more interaction with the agents of their will as opposed to, you know, Bob the the turnip farmer, yeah. you know, in uh, in Kendermore or something like, like that, Jimmy right? Farrow, he did great turnips. He did great work. I mean, His pickled beets are the best. I was <laughs> they can't be touched. Yeah, I think oh. that's a, I mean that's a good distinction to make. I think you're right. It's probably like the mortal agents have like a direct like Goldmoon had a direct like a, a like a, a direct interaction, not with Mishakal yeah, specifically. Yeah, but like even right? that, that this is what I love so much about it is that her, the 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 faithful, especially in the Age of Despair, mm-hmm. you know, we we like to pretend like it's as if it was Goldmoon after the War of the Lands, but the truth mm-hmm. is, Goldmoon had no idea what she was doing. She yes. did. She didn't even get the staff. It was her man yeah. who got the staff. Yeah. And so she's just literally going off of faith, having zero clue about any yeah. of it. And then when she finally does get the dis of Mishakal, she hands it off to, El- yeah, uh, to someone to else. Like, yeah, I was gonna say El yeah. Minister, and then I was gonna have people shouting at me. <laughs> I'm, do, I'm I'm worried about that all the time. Like, I got <laughs> agonized over the canon and over the lore and stuff like that because yeah. I'm just waiting for somebody to to 
throw uh, throw tomatoes at me right, for getting right. something wrong. That's what I imagine when you were describing the the Gen Con room full of oh, Dragonlance gosh. fans. It's just oh, arguing over pronunciation. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> well, the pronunciation. Characters. Like we have a. I didn't put this in the in the, the stuff that I've sent to you, but I actually have a pronunciation guide, and I'm just waiting for somebody to to put a post a review on. Uh, on uh, DMs go, it's Paladine, not Paladine, or something like that. <laughs> right, oh my right. God. Yeah. Right. People get crazy about it. But that's yeah. why we, we are the way we are. We have Absolutely. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm sorry. We're almost at the hour that I had planned on this, and we haven't even gotten into anything. You're so good. I'm just going to sort of thumb through some of these press pages that you have mm -hmm. uh, presented here on the, the first and uh, second module that are available right now on DMs go, if you guys want to go pick them up. You can do so. They also have uh, uh, virtual tabletop versions if you mm -hmm. want to run it virtually, which is very cool, I think. Yeah. But you know, you can see they went through. First of all, I'm a I'm a I'm an advertising professional, and so uh, graphic design wise, I, I yeah. really appreciate what you guys did here. Yeah, uh, Rich Lescaflair, the guy that behind. Um, um, oh man, he made uh, Esper Genesis. Okay. Is the guy that uh, that does the the layout design for us. He's fantastic. And then all of our maps were made by Dungeon Baker, uh, Neil Crabtree. Awesome. And all the all those really great stuff. That's great. Um, so the second one, uh, this is always like the tough part, right? Whenever mm -hmm. you're doing like uh, any type of series, mm -hmm. you have to think about escalation. You have to think about scope. You have to think about well, what did they learn from the first one, and how are that how is that going to inform this next one? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot that must go into it. And you, having planned out twelve, I can only imagine the the crazy, sunny in Philadelphia. Oh yes, board with strings and pin thumbtacks <laughs> that you guys have. I don't want anybody to see that because they'll they'll take me away and put me in a padded room if they right. see that board. <laughs> you just have to move the camera. Don't zoom it up. Yeah, just, it's, it's all right over here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what was the most difficult aspect of of creating the second adventure or helping guide the second adventure from the first? So for, first of all, we knew that we needed an, an epic to start out with because uh, we wanted an explosive opening, or I wanted an explosive opening. Um, I, I like in movies and books, I want you to grab my attention and show me how what the stakes are and how serious things are up front. Instead mm -hmm. of like, this, there's a time and a place for a slow burn towards ex escalation, but I, I like the, you know, the, the Star Wars crawl goes up and then you know the Star Destroyer comes in behind uh, the Leia's Corellian Corvette, and it's like there's this really—it's the big eye-popping opening. Lots of laser beams flying all over the place. Darth Vader shows up, so it, I know how serious the state of the galaxy is from the very for the first like five or ten minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing happens here. So Dragons of Destruction revolves around uh, the opening. Uh, the opening launch, or um, the dragon armies, the red dragon armies launch into into Salamnia from the east. So, so coming over from uh, Throttle in particular, and Throttle Gap, uh, Throt had fallen, and they they moved uh, into the into the east, or excuse me, into the west. And right. so uh, this is the no one's seen a dragon in you know a thousand plus years, right? And so mm -hmm. they're they've 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 all all in. Uh, and uh, they've been regaled to, or relate, or uh, they've all uh, faded into obscurity and legend. Right? Yeah. And so I, we also, I knew it's like you have to start off with a dragon in this because I don't like the last thing I need to hear is there aren't enough dragons in a Dragonlance story too, right? <laughs> right. But there's one. But here's the thing though, one is enough. One like that's one of the things like in these days in other settings in D and D is that dragons are just kind of like you just 
kind of like whittle, whittle your way through them over the course of an adventure. And it's really not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Whereas dragons and Kryn are absolutely terrifying. Yep. Dragon fear is a very real thing and things like that. So it was all about having a really explosive opening, something really, really big. And then it's not as intimate or personal in the first adventure. It's more about um, the Salamnic army trying to, to maneuver towards the East, knowing what was coming for them. And then whenever they got there, they were felt felt fall. Uh, they were unprepared for it, and so really one of the things that we got in the feedback in Dragons of Destruction that I, I was wor- what I was worried about is that it was going to be a downer ending because um, sometimes the forces of good don't win, and part of winning is surviving. Yeah. And when we're talking about in modern D and D, what we've what we've seen a lot of is like again there's like a training wheel aspect of it where you want to make sure that people have a good time. You don't want them to lose all the times, but. I see I see the importance in failure and I see the importance in uh, setting the stakes based on a failure so that you can come back from it, rise up. Right. And so the first Dragons of Destruction is just it's harrowing. It's a really, really hard war as hell um, uh, expression of Dragonlance of how, like where the stakes actually are. I love that. I, I love the fact that of consequences in games mm. in general, but especially when you're talking about like a war-torn mm. world that we're sort of being pushed into with uh, the beginning of the War of the Lance and Dragonlance. I mean, it's, you know, real life, anyone who's grown up in our generation where, you know, Vietnam was very much your father. You know, it's a, a personal, intimate relationship with the fallout of war yes. and how it affects yeah. people. Um, I have siblings who were affected because of the exposure to Agent Orange. I mean, mm. it's it that war genuinely is hell, but there's also a, a sort of an echo of war mm. that extends beyond the actual oh, yeah. conflict yeah. and and genuinely affects human beings. One thing that I always loved about Dragonlance is that it set that side of it very much in front and center it's mm-hmm. not you know and that's sort of personified i think brilliantly through the dragon fear back mm-hmm. when i was a kid playing D, you know not AD&D or anything but just the bo- old box sets you met a dragon it was either a total part party kill or you know you defeated the dragon it wasn't like right. you were urinating down your leg in fright <laughs> because there's this monstrosity you're just like all right let's get it boys yeah, <laughs> and you just yeah. jump in I mean, that was on the cover of the box of, that I was playing of Dungeons & Dragons. With Dragonlance, you get the shadow of it going over you, yeah. and you can't move. Yeah. Like, it's genuinely terrifying, you know? It's it's like you're just being thrown into trench warfare or something, and you don't know how to act or react. I love that so much, and so mm. I, I think it's a really well, giant way. dinosaurs. You know, giant everything dinosaurs should be terrifying. But then when you talk about when you add into it, the Dragonlance element doesn't just make it a physiological or a psychological um, reaction. It's also there's a a magical effect. Mm -hmm. Like these are not these are not just big lizard creatures. These are intelligent. Like they are uh, they are there's like an element of divinity in them to a, to a, to a, just like they yeah. were the, the first that were created. And so there's, there's something that's incredibly fantastical about them and supernatural. That's probably the better way of looking at it. There's something supernatural about Krenish dragons that sets them apart from the other dragons in the mythologies across the, the, the D and D uh, cosmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it so much. So this one's not on um, roll 20. Oh, I'm sorry. DMs guild yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, dragons of revelation. Um, is there anything that you can tell us about this? Yeah, this is where the real launch point of the story is. Okay. So uh, Divinity 
stages you for the War of the Lance yeah. and gets you ready to play a Dragonlance game. Dragons of Destruction gets your attention. And uh, it, it, it it's essentially like it's like the uh, divinity and destruction are almost like extended session zeros, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like everything is staging you up or getting you prepped for Dragons of Revelation because that's effectively when um, it's the it's the Pax Tharkis or not Pax Tharkis. It's more of the, the Zaxaroth, oh. right? It's like well, this is where things are really like the the story is really going to kick into gear at mm-hmm. this point, and the and the the stakes we find out are not as uh, like the the least of our worries right now was a a goblin hobgoblin horde from the east and into the west and one dragon. There's a lot more to it than just that. There's more of like a, a divine or a, like a, a destiny element that's uh, that's staged into it. Yeah. And so this too, like with the in fellows or the the heroes of the lance, there is a there's like a, a fate. Like you're you are a thread of uh, of fate. You're one of the stones that get dropped into the pond or into the the uh, the river of time, and you see all you are the part of the ripples that uh, that uh, that uh, move across the waters. And so you're you're introduced to uh, some key players uh, in this in, in particular, uh, and essentially the main the MacGuffin for those that are familiar with the term, mm-hmm. uh, the, the main element, not the dragon lance or the the discs of Mishakal or anything like that, but like the main MacGuffin that you're going to be after in the rest of the the adventures. Uh, is uh, springboarded here in Dragons of Revelation. Cool. Well, I got to say, I'm not a big fan when it comes to playing other people's adventures. I like the idea of like official adventures. Mm-hmm. So like the original DLs, I love, uh, like I haven't personally run through them, but I love pulling story beats out of them to sort of sure. interweave. Shadow of the Dragon Queen is the first official adventure that I've ever run oh, uh, wow. in Dragonlance because I've always just done sandbox Dragonlance games before. So um, it's it's very interesting sort of seeing the sensibilities from Watsi and sort of twisting it to my own sensibilities, mm-hmm. sure. especially with character development and stuff. I'm actually really interested in running your uh, adventures because of just our interaction now, you know, just awesome. the way that you're yeah. describing what you put into mm-hmm. crafting and architecting them, I think is, is very, very interesting. Before That's we awesome. um, head out, I've got a couple more questions that yeah. you're okay with. I'm good. I got all the time you need. Go um, for it. From the, the chat here. One is dragons, right? Obviously mm-hmm. it's Dragonlance, but part of what really makes Dragonlance great is, you know, we were sort of tongue in cheek, you know, laughing about it earlier. It's the fact that you do get to have an opportunity of riding a dragon in a war yep. scenario. So do you have any flight mechanics or do you address that aspect of it all when mm. it comes to, um, I mean, I don't know if you're going to get to that point in mm. your, your adventures at all, but is it, have you ever thought about like flight movement of dragons in a, a sort of a, a tabletop scenario. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that we actually, the one that we have four the last four adventures in the series are being uh, to the first two are being written now. Um, and so the one that we're about to go into has an L that element in it. Oh, right. Yeah. Not, I know not to give too much away, but mm-hmm. like that, again, that, that was the other thing I felt like there are certain parts to writing Dragonlance stories that if I didn't have an element in it, I was going to be mad at myself yeah. because like I, I want to be able to ride a dragon. And if I'm not going to have a lance or dragon lance, at least I want to be able to ride something in flight mm-hmm. and I want to do like a, uh, like aerial combat. Right. So there are going to be, we're taking, there's not a lot, unfortunately in the dry and the DMs, uh, the DMG or anything like that in fifth edition for flight mechanics. So we had to get creative uh, with, with some of the ways that we're doing it almost like uh because the the vibe that we were trying to go for, uh, go with is like a, a dog fight in world war ii okay, yeah. right so it is uh it's chasing after one another and mm-hmm. to, in order to try to create an advantageous 
position or to uh, to use the 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 landscape that's uh, that you're skimming across uh, to your yeah. advantage. Right. The it's the uh, like uh, going through a canyon and going around a turn and then turning around and breathing fire at them as they come across. So there are elements to that. But a lot of the, those things are more narrative driven mm -hmm. as opposed to specific mechanics on plot, putting people out on grid paper or on hex maps or things like that and saying, I move here and then I put myself on top of these dice and this is how tall I am or how far up I am or where my elevation is or things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got some we're working on it. Okay. Well, our, our best best minds are, are on that right now, actually. <laughs> Top men. <laughs> Top men. Top. So, I mean, of course, the other side of that is mass warfare. Now, we mm -hmm. had battle system in AD&D, battle system 2E in AD&D mm -hmm. 2E. I don't personally know if we had anything in 3rd edition. We were absent in 4th, and in 5th, mm -hmm. we have Warriors of Kryn, yes. which, you know, the, the board game side of it, I think, is fun, it doesn't really deal with mass combat. It deals with the heroes right. during a mass combat. Yes. And then, of course, we have the way that they presented it. If you didn't have the board game, which mm -hmm. I think is a personally a horrible way of dealing with mass combat, mm -hmm. where you just have encounters that occur at right. a per particular you know initiative point. How do you deal with uh, mass combat, if at all, in your modules? Yeah, uh, we don't deal with mass combat yet. The, there is. Well, mass combat typically comes in the form of, of multi-table multi events. Yeah. The mass combat is that you've got a hundred different people that are playing the, 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 the same scenario and they're all fighting a big boss monster or they're trying to achieve a certain – like they're trying to take this hill. And in order to take this hill, they have to fight off this many goblins. And with multi-table events – the the 16 tables that are that are playing the the same adventure together mm -hmm. they they have an individual dm that's running them but then they also have an admin team that the is that gets reported back to so they're recording statistics about things that are happening at each one of the tables like did they take this hill did they did they defend against this thing were they able to like like it, as these things are being checked off then different uh branches open up in the story that, that may or may not have been there dependent upon uh, uh, what was achieved and what was not achieved, right? Okay. So whatever you, the win condition isn't as simple as we did the thing or not. There are different elements that are that are uh, created or that are uh, that are presented that uh, some tables will do and some tables won't. Like okay. the uh, in Dragons of Destruction, you can choose to go. There are essentially three different or three different um, branches you can go down in the in the kind of decision tree of what the what your part of the army is going to end up doing. Mm -hmm. And depending on how that goes, you could get a, po a different possible ending at the end, depending upon how, uh, how successful or unsuccessful you are with it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I said, that's a long way of saying that we don't have specific uh, mass combat rules. We kind of have like the multi-table function yeah. that helps out with that quite a bit. I can imagine that would get really clunky and difficult just based on pacing of different tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yes. And the, and the way that that works is a lot of is you have to really push in the the um, in the writing of it the, and the admin notes or their GM notes about like you've got one hour to do this. So within this hour, these are essentially the high the high points of what you okay. need to hit. Right. Yeah. Do this, 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 and this. And as long as you, as long as you can do that within the hour, and you're relaying this back to the admin team. Then that's how you're able to to stay within the uh, stay within that that block time, and so they're to varying degrees of of uh, success. Yeah. But uh, but most GMs that we have that are working on it right now, again, top men, uh, they uh, that's 
the other thing that the admins are are doing too is they're helping to keep them on t- on time also. So you'll have an admin that'll that'll walk around and say, "Hey, you got 15 okay. minutes left. You got 10 minutes left." They're kind of giving them so that they know to speed up or uh, to slow down depending upon how much time they've got left. Yeah. And do you find that players are genuinely amenable to that sort of pacing? I think the players understand that it's it's the within the circumstances of what they're what you're what you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, I think they do. I think that. Again, it depends on your team that's working on it to how organic and fluid that it is. Mm-hmm. If you've never run an, a, a multi-table event before, um, then and you've done it, you're doing it cold to the best of your ability. You're gonna, it's probably gonna have, you're gonna have a different dividend that's paid out over some like a team like from Baldwin Games. That, that's that's what they do every single every month. They're running right. usually ten epics over the course of the weekend at, diff, at various times. So, do you ever feel that you you do you run like personal, you know, at home or virtual games in addition to the organized play games? Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've got a my my regular Friday game with some friends of mine that I've known since high school. Okay. They act as my playtest team. So whenever an adventure comes in, I'll read through it. I'll make whatever my notes are, my, where I feel like my hot spots are in the in the adventure that need to really be vetted out, and then they go through it first. So they are they're they're always in the playtest credits for the the adventures, and then. I run um, not just for Baldwin Games, but also work with uh, World of Game Design mm-hmm. on games that are not just D&D, like Mothership, Octoon Cthulhu, uh, a lot of the 2D20 stuff, Free League stuff. So, okay. yep. Yeah, because I, I always wonder, like, if it became too much of a job, do you miss just the free-form storytelling side of it? Yeah, I do. I think, like, I love it, and I wouldn't change any change the opportunity at all, but it mm-hmm. definitely, there's a, a level of... It, there is a job element to it, right? Because it's, I'm not just doing it for me, right? I'm doing it. I'm trying to meet the expectation of the community. I'm trying to meet, the, I'm like, I'm trying not to upset Margaret and Tracy or Douglas Niles or Mary Kirchhoff or anybody else that was on the original design team. I'm trying to like, I put a lot of that on myself to like, I just want to make the best possible thing that I can, not just for myself, but for, for them. Right. Yeah. And for the community at large. So a lot of it's just boils down to expectation and just trying to, to meet expectation out there though. How is how do you get that the the feedback in that? I mean, do you, do you feel like you're getting um, if by taking such care and concern to live up to your own expectations of these people who sort of dip their toes in it in the mm-hmm. first place, do you get some form of a feedback loop that uh, lets you know that yeah you are on the right track and you feel fulfilled by doing that, yeah. or is it just this constant state of you know, anticipation and animosity mm-hmm. almost towards never getting anything like maybe, I don't know. What, what is it? Yeah. I've, so it's, it's different elements, right? So from a, like what's the feedback from the people that created it, mm-hmm. right? I've, I have not talked to Tracy about it. I sent him a message and said, Hey, here, like, but when I first got the gig, I sent a message to him and Margaret and just said, Hey, I wanted you to know that I'm working on this. Uh, I love the work that you did and just, I want to, if nothing else, just like, just like wave that, wave me off and say that you're not mad at me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing else. Right. It's like, don't mess my stuff up. Uh, I didn't get anything back from Tracy, which that's, again, that's fine. I did get some, some uh, back and forth from Margaret who was very, very gracious and very, very kind. And, uh, and really essentially what she said was it's in the hands of the fans, you know, that like they only, they took it as far as they're going to take it. These next three books are what they're going to write. And I don't think that she, I don't think she's holding any grudges, you know, she, like if, if she know for her at least, and I think this is what I essentially what I gleaned from it is the intentions are pure. They're doing the best that you can. That's all anybody could ever ask for. Yeah. 
you know so from i think from that from that from the original design team i think that's about the best you're going to end up getting because mm-hmm. it's and it, part of it too is like being protective about you know stepping in the wrong in the wrong elements you know the recent drama that they had with was the coast and all that stuff. I know that they're probably pretty tight lipped as a result of that too. But, yeah. uh, and then the community has been really positive. Uh, like I haven't have, I've heard like if there's any negative feedback, it's all at all. It's, it is like nitpicks or it is like, I, I didn't really think this kind of, this part, it was a little bit clunky. And it didn't work, but what'll typically happen is I thrive on feedback. If you're nice about it, don't be a jerk. I'll probably won't take any of your advice. If, if you're your input, if you're being a jerk about it, but if you're at least saying like, I, this thing didn't work for me at my table, I'll go back and I'll look at it and be like, yeah, that probably didn't work. And it hasn't gone to DMs Guild yet. So there's some, there's some time we can go in there. We can kind of noodle with it a little bit and make it, make it work. But all so far, the community has been really, really positive about it. The people that have played it have really enjoyed it. The, the best compliment I've gotten so far has nothing to do necessarily with somebody saying, Hey, I read your, or wrote or I read your adventure or played in your adventure. And it was awesome. It was, hey, I just finished your adventure. Tell me more about Dragonlance and how do I, or what do I need to read first? I'm like, oh, that's the best. I'm like, brother, how much time do you have? Is the question I have to ask him. So he's doing big inhale. Yeah, and they're like, exactly. oh, I'm sorry, I asked. <laughs> yeah. And then the other, I think the other element is not just the players, but then it's who's running them because they're the, that's really my audience. Yeah. That's my direct audience of the people that are reading through the modules. Is it readable? Is it enjoyable? Are you relating to it? Um, is it fun to, to run and so far so good on that, on that aspect too. It's been, been pretty positive so far. I'm not sure what in chat, there's a bunch of AI comments coming through. Um, I appreciate you tuning in, but I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so that's all I can go with. That. Skynet. Yeah. Skynet. Yeah, it's real. It's here. It's coming. Um, I mean, ultimately I think as long as it's coming from a position of, I want to tell a great Dragonlance mm-hmm. story. This is a setting that I dearly care about and I want to expose other people to it. Mm-hmm. Then that's all that matters. I think as human beings in general, and this goes for literally any human in any given situation, learning how to give and take constructive criticism mm-hmm. is the most important thing you can do in life because yeah. we have to engage with other humans on this planet and mm-hmm. learning how to do that in a, if not professional, at least in a uh, respectful way mm-hmm. is the most important thing. And no one has ever said in this world that I know of that you have to play D&D or Dragonlance games my mm-hmm. way. Right. Play them how you want to play them in the way that you enjoy playing them. And that's all that's important because yeah, exactly. it's the setting itself that is beautiful and that we can all enjoy. We don't have to see eye to eye in every avenue of every aspect of it. Absolutely. Um, that being said... You're doing it wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Thank um, you. I appreciate that. How do you feel about um? Uh, I, I, I we talked a little bit about talked about. It. I mean, we emailed back and forth just really, really briefly about it. But how do you feel Five E lives up to your expectations of Dragonlance when it comes to novels and the the game products that have come mm. before it? Do you feel like it caters to that Dragonlance tone and vibe, or is it mm. incumbent upon? the dungeon master to make it feel that way. Yeah. I think that no matter which, which setting that you're playing in, the book's going to only the the setting material can only give you so much. Mm-hmm. I think with Dragonlance, <clears throat> it was a quick guide to Dragonlance is about the best that you were going to end up getting out of it. <clears throat> there are elements of it that um, I, I liked and some things that I didn't like. Like one of, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I think I've gone on the record before of, uh, of feats 
for for designating or uh, the elements oh, right. of knighthood or yeah. yeah the organizations and factions and things like that. I, th- I thought that was that was a miss. I think that was really just kind of like we're trying to design the new edition of D and D, and we're going to use Dragonlance as a kind of like a, a testing ground for it to see whether people hate it or love it. And so I don't know how successful that was for him, but it's not so it's not my favorite element of it. That's for sure. Uh, I think too that using the the Wow, what a, the biggest miss though was how they uh, how they incorporated the three moons of magic. They didn't. Yeah, they, they didn't. Right? It's like they did kind of with the lunar sorcerer, but that's not mm. that's not it. <laughs> like all magic, all, all arcane magic on Kryn is derived from the three the three moons or from the the three gods of magic. And so, like how the, the waxing and waning of the moons and where they are in their cycle and how they're aligned and things like that. Those are all key elements. And that's actually one of the things I really wanted to incorporate in the organized play aspect. But there were certain they they would have let us they would have let me build out a full mechanic for it. But it's something that would have had to been it's it is uh, it is separate from the hardcover, and it's it's hard to incorporate like a full new mechanic that's going to have to carry for the next twelve sessions that isn't coupled with something that's already that's already out there. So unfortunately that was one of the designs that I didn't get to with a wish I could have done it, but I didn't have the time was part of it. It was just time and like trying to bolt it in. It was something we'd have to have in every single adventure. It's like another page or two on lunar magic and how it works. And that's, if someone, nobody's played in the setting before they have to pick up a new rule that they didn't have in the player's handbook or in Tasha's guide to whatever. So we had to, did you ever consider using some of those other Dragonlance? um, fan organizations, publications as mm. reference point for those. Yeah, I talked to, I like, I'm pretty, I like, I've talked with uh, Trampus Whitman and uh, some of the folks over at Dragonlance Nexus, love Trampus. Uh, so I've even talked to the, the Splitterverse guys about some of the work that right. they worked on too. Uh, and this though, we were, part of this is it has to stay in-house. That we gotcha. can't use DMs Guild material because, well, part of this, I did that intentionally too, right? It's like, I want, they should have their own, their own contribution to it that is distinct and that's part of the selling point for their material. And then they can bolt it in if they want to, but adventurers league is an all or nothing thing. Whatever you end up running, it has to be as close to part of our rules are dictated by Wizards of the Coast's admins. uh, Also it's like, here are the elements of Dragonlance that are distinct. And here's how the rules are a little bit different. Wizards of the Coast indicates that to us as opposed to us being able to use third party material. Okay. Um, I guess by way of sort of uh, closing down our conversation, mm-hmm. as this uh, last sort of question here from the community, um, are you able to give us any hints on maybe a, a big name that we might be familiar with that might show up in some of your? Oh movies? man, yeah. If it's spoils actually... something, don't do it. But uh, let me think about this for a second. Okay, so in this, then one of the adventures that are being written right now. Uh, there is, um, oh man, how do I do this without spoiling it? Can you hint the, around it? There is a very important relationship. There's a, cu- a power couple. Okay. Okay. That's in it. Wink. Yeah. That's in it. Yeah. 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 I think I know power exactly couple. what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Well, this has been a lot of fun. John, thank you so <laughs> awesome. much yeah, for, man. for coming on and just sort of riffing about a little bit of everything, really. Everything. Uh, I'm telling you, I love it. I could do it all day long. I don't get to do it nearly enough. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. I would uh, highly recommend anyone to go out there. If you want to run some modules that are really sort of bite-sized, four-hour chunks that go into a grand campaign, Mm -hmm. take a look 
at the uh, Vault of the Undying series that they're they're putting out. Uh, John, where can people find you online, or what's the best places they can sort of look for this stuff? Yeah, you can find me. Uh, I'm actually one of the co-hosts of the Geeks Can't podcast. We record on uh, stream on ni- at 9 p.m. on Sunday nights and uh, Tuesday nights. So we have like in about four hours from now, or no, two and a half hours. <laughs> I'll be I'll be streaming on Twitch through uh, Wogdy Live, uh, World of Game Design, and so uh, that's Geeks Can't is the name of the podcast. For me, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook under usually under Dwarven DM. It's kind of where I where my my roots came from in organized play. So that's what most people know me by. Uh, those are your best places to find me or DMs Guild, Baldman Games. That's the, that's the good stuff right there. Awesome. So Dwarven DM, what's your sub race? Oh, buddy, let me tell you. Uh, probably a Hell Dwarf because I'm, I'm too nice to okay. be a, a stuffy, a stuffy leader, mountain dwarf. Right? Yeah. I dig it, man. And if I'm going to be one of the dwarves, I'm totally Kaolin. Uh, Thor Barden are the worst. They are the worst dwarves. Man. They closed the doors, man. They're a bunch of jerks, man. The Kaolin were cool, man. They were like super nice and... Uh, by, by the way, shout out to the Kaolin Dwarves. They're they're actually in the in the adventures too. Oh, they're my, cool. easily my favorite of the Dwarven races. So awesome. or Dwarven uh, kingdoms, yeah. we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. South of Salamia, there, people. Right, represent. Yeah. All right. Well, have a wonderful evening. Good luck with everything that you're doing out there, and uh, I genuinely appreciate you taking time. Oh, with hey, me. are you kidding me? Thank you. Thank you for for keeping the the fires lit. I'm a. I told Adam when, before we got started. I'm a fan. So I'm, this is. I'm tickled to be a part of it. So thank you for what you're doing. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, that is gonna do it. That's all the time we have to talk about uh, Dragonlance and of course the incredible creator John Christian. What are you all watching this? think of his work Uh, would you like to see his adventures in an edition other than fifth you can always leave a comment in the comments below if you join live throw it in the chat there or feel free to email me at info at dlsaga.com or hunt down john online in all those places that he already mentioned i would like to take a moment and uh remind you to subscribe to this youtube channel click that bell to get notified about upcoming videos and click the like button all that goes to help other dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content and of course this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the dragonlance saga so thank you all so much for joining in that celebration so for john and myself until next time it's